Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, Richard Seaver music director James Conlon walks us through the history, the plot, and of course, the music of The Dwarf by Alexander Zemlinsky. Don't miss this rarely performed one-act opera featured in our upcoming double bill. Tickets are on sale now at laopera.org. I'm James Conlon, the Richard Seaver Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. And today I'm going to talk about an extraordinary opera and an extraordinary composer, Alexander Zemlinsky, The Dwarf, Der Zwerg, based on a short story of Oscar Wilde. If I look back on my now almost 20 years at Los Angeles Opera, I have to say two productions by... Darko Trisniak stand out in my mind as being highlights. One is The Dwarf by Zimlinski, and the other is The Ghost of Versailles by John Corigliano. And it's a great pleasure for me to return to a work that we performed in 2008 by one of my favorite composers, and I hope to make him one of yours as well, Alexander Zimlinski, sometimes known as Alexander von Zimlinski. He was amongst the Austrian composers who twice fled the Nazis, first from Berlin back to his native Vienna, and then from Vienna to New York City, where he spent his last years and passed away in 1942. Zemlinski, to my mind, is one of the great composers of his period, but he was banned by the Nazis and ultimately Uh, had to flee. Now, a lot of his colleagues, uh, and one of them who happened to have been his brother-in-law at one time, Arnold Schoenberg, came here to Los Angeles. And we know a lot more about Arnold Schoenberg. We know much less about Alexander Zemlinsky. But in a very different way, his music is a powerful force for those of us who've had the great fortune to know it. So amongst the operas he wrote... This is a particularly interesting, strong, powerful, passionate story. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. The story starts in Madrid and... If any of you have ever seen the famous painting Las Meninas by Diego Velázquez, which hangs in the Prado, you will remember this very special painting of the royal family and these young people in the forefront who are young, small. Las Meninas are maids of honor. And there is a dwarf, uh, which was a pretty much a, a staple in the courts of Spain. And Velázquez, in fact, spent quite a a long time, as he was the court painter for Philip IV of Spain, doing portraits of some of those dwarfs. Now, those men were there to amuse the king. But of course, Velázquez portrays them in a very human way. And this opera is going to be the story of a man who is a dwarf, whom we will see has an enormous spirit, a transcendent understanding of world and life, 
generosity to the point of innocence, and he will fall afoul of the very elegant but actually very wicked court and life in that court. Las Meninas inspired Oscar Wilde to write a short story called A Birthday for the Infanta. The Infanta is the daughter of the king. And on this birthday, the Infanta in Oscar Wilde, she's 12 years old. In the opera, as it was reinterpreted by Zemlinsky, she's 18 years old. She receives, amongst other things, the gift of a dwarf, a man who was born in northern Africa and came on a ship to Spain, somehow found his way to Madrid and was given as a gift to the Infanta. And that dwarf is going to fall in love with the Infanta of Spain. And she is going to be amused by him. And what we're going to see is the capacity to fall in love on the part of the dwarf and the very shallow, almost cruel indifference of a daughter of privilege who momentarily finds something amusing and then throws it out when she's done with it. So is it a tragedy? Yes. And it's a powerful tragedy. And remember this, I'm going to come back to it shortly. The story written by Oscar Wilde became known on the continent in the early part of the 20th century. You'll remember that Oscar Wilde, born in Dublin, was an Irish writer, brilliant genius. Oscar Wilde had the misfortune to have experienced what the British considered a scandal as a sexual life and was therefore imprisoned. And this experience in prison broke him physically and mentally. And he eventually, after he was freed, he went to Paris and he died there, a, a very young man, still in his 40s, one of the great literary minds of his time. His books and literature was banned in the English-speaking countries. That includes the United States and England. But it was the continent of Europe who had no uh, prejudice against him that discovered his genius and started to make use of it, and particularly in the operatic world. So we have three operas written within a very short period of time that are based on Oscar Wilde. The first one is perhaps the most famous by Richard Strauss, and it's Salome. Strauss premiered it in 1905, and several years later, Alexander Zemlinsky, our hero of this particular story, conducted the uh, premiere at the Volksoper in Vienna in 1910, so he knew it very well. It was the first one of the first operas that took a text and literally, word for word, set it to music. Now, mind you, the text was actually written in French, so it was translated into German. Zemlinsky loved this idea, and then a few years later, took a work that had been published after Oscar Wilde's death, never performed, called A Florentine Tragedy. And he set that word for word in 1917 and created what I consider one of the two 
great, great operas of Zeblinsky amongst the seven or eight that he wrote, it was a very, very powerful artistic success. Now, unfortunately, it was premiered during the First World War, and so it couldn't travel outside the German-speaking world and didn't catch on and still needs a great deal of defense, as do many of the works of Zemlinsky and other composers whose works were subsequently banned by the Nazis. Now, several years again after that, in 1922, he writes another one-act opera, and this is The Dwarf, in German called Der Zwerg, and this is the opera that we are reviving at Los Angeles Opera, The Dwarf. Now, there's some other background, though, that I think is interesting. One of Zemlinsky's colleagues, the composer Franz Schraker, had already written a ballet for a famous duo of sisters by the name of Wiesenthal and premiered that ballet in 1908 on the subject, A Birthday for the Infanta, similarly based on Oscar Wilde. So Zemlinsky knew that work. At a certain point... Zemlinsky had gone to his colleague Franz Schraker, who also wrote opera texts, wrote his own opera texts, and he said, can you write me a story about an ugly man? And so Schraker did. And at the end of which, there are two versions of this story. He liked the libretto so much that he decided he wanted to keep it. He didn't want to give it away to Zemlinsky. And the other version is Zemlinsky didn't care for it and Maybe they're both true, but one way or the other, that story about an ugly man gave birth to one of the great operas of Franz Schreker, which in German has a title, Die Gezeichneten, but it's a complicated title to translate. We produced it at the Los Angeles Opera, and we called it The Stigmatized. And so Zimlinski was clearly already, 1909, 1910, was looking for this theme, an unattractive man as the protagonist of his opera. And so it, this idea must have gestated for a decade, and in 1922, out comes the dwarf. Now, why is this so important? This is important because Zemlinski himself was a very, very small man, considered himself ugly, and was considered by other persons as ugly. But those who knew him knew him as a musical genius, a greatly creative mind, and he had his charisma uh, nonetheless. Now, there's a love story behind all of this, and here it comes. And this is very important, and this is how, be patient now, where you're going to see the link between Oscar Wilde, Zalome, a Florentine tragedy, the dwarf, and Alexander Zemlinsky. 
a beautiful young woman who was a composer wanted to study composition with a master. And there was a young master in Vienna, and that master was Alexander Zemlinsky. He was in his late 20s. I think she was 18 or 19. And so he took her on as a student. Now, the story has, again, two versions, that which was recounted by the woman and that which was recalled by Alexander Zemlinsky. The woman's name was Alma Schindler. Yes, she's a famous woman because she subsequently became Alma Mahler. And she was to live in this very turbulent time in Vienna, the time of Zemlinsky, the time of Mahler, the time of Schoenberg, the time of Schrieker, the time of Richard Strauss. And she was eventually to emigrate to the United States and she would move to Southern California and lived and died in Los Angeles. Now, Zimlinski was in love, and Alma confided with her diary that she was attracted to him despite the fact that he was ugly. He had no chin, she said. He barely came up to her shoulders, he was so small, but that he was so charismatic that nevertheless she experienced this great attraction for him. She abandoned Zemlinski when she met Gustav Mahler. She was to go on after Mahler's death to marry Walter Gropius and Franz Werfel. And she, in addition to her obvious talents and intellectual powers and compositional talent, she was a woman of many parts. Now that's another story. But the important part of the story is she became the muse to Alexander Zemlinsky, both in a positive and in a negative way. And the first great piece of music he wrote for orchestra, which is the story of the Little Mermaid, uh, called Diese Jungfrau in German, is the story, really, if you transpose the characters that we know, the Little Mermaid wants to be human. She falls in love with the prince. The story ends tragically, although the Disney version does not end tragically, but the original story, which came out of fairy tales, was tragic. And the tragedy was that the prince was, after a short time, indifferent to the mermaid's love, and she had given her whole soul to the prince. So we had the story, and we can say in a very general sense that Alexander Zemlinsky identified with the little mermaid, as we call her in English, the mermaid, and the unattainable prince was the unattainable Alma Schindler Mahler. Now, then we get to these three extraordinary works by Oscar Wilde, and we see a common thread going through them. You'll know the story of Salome from scriptures. Salome danced for King Herod and asked for the head of John the Baptist to be served up to her on a platter. Now, Oscar Wilde took this story and weaves an extraordinary tale around it. And what we see is something that is very dear to Oscar Wilde, who contrasts constantly outer beauty with inner corruption and outer ugliness on the surface, but inner purity. And he very often creates characters 
or situations in which we are able to contrast that. And so in Zalome, we see the very beautiful young princess, Zalome, but we learn that she is corrupt to the point where she will ask for the head of John the Baptist, clearly at her mother's behest, but she will then have conceived a passion for John the Baptist, and so she kisses his head on the lips. This is one of the most shocking moments in literature and one of the most shocking moments in opera. And Richard Strauss showed the operatic world that he could shock them in a way that nobody else had and create a great success with it. So this is on Alexander Zemlinsky's mind, and by the way, everybody else's mind at the time. Now, we go on to a second story, a Florentine tragedy, which has three characters only. Uh, a beautiful woman, her husband, who is a merchant in Renaissance Florence, and a prince of, coming from an aristocratic family in Florence. The aristocratic prince takes a liking to the wife, whose name is Bianca, which means white, which is, of course, significant because she should be so beautiful and pure looking, but in fact is having a, a passionate erotic relationship with this prince while her husband, who travels to sell his goods, travels around the north of Italy, is away. The whole drama and the whole tragedy takes place in the course of an hour in the home, the moment that the husband returns from a trip to find Bianca there with the aristocratic prince. Eventually, the husband, who is ugly and lacking in manners, as contrasted with the prince, who is elegant, handsome, but in his way superficial, the husband will outwit the prince and will eventually murder him as a vengeance. Now, what happens after that, I'll leave for another time, but I if I've whetted your appetite with this story, it's much worth getting to hear how it all ends. But the point again is the ugly, crude artisan, the man who works, is in fact more clever, more intelligent than the beautiful, gifted, by birth, aristocrat. And so here we see Zimlinski again. Zimlinski is the husband uh, who is in conflict and in a jealous a state over his wife because she has preferred a good-looking aristocrat to him, and yet he proves himself smarter. Once again, that beautiful woman is Alma, by now, Alma Mahler, but by 1917, she has married Walter Gropius. But Zemlinski is still obsessed with her. So he retells that story in another form, basing it on Oscar Wilde. So we now have two Oscar Wilde operas, Salome and The Florentine Tragedy. And now we're going to get the third, and that's our subject today, The Dwarf. So now we see the dwarf who is handicapped, but who has the soul of a poet and a great humanist. And he falls in love with the beautiful aristocratic, royal infanta of Spain, who on the inside is at best shallow and at worst cruel. And so we're going to see that contrast again against inner corruption and outward beauty, outward ugliness, but inner beauty. And once again, Alexander Zulinski identifies with this dwarf 
And the princess is, of course, once again, the unattainable Alma, Schindler, Mahler, Gropius, Verfuhr. So where do we situate Alexander Zemlinsky? As many of you know, I have devoted the last three decades to trying to be sure that the world is made aware of how much great music was written in the 20th century that basically through the cruelty and the malevolent actions of the Nazi regime fell by the wayside, was banned at the time. Some of the composers were were personally victims. Some died in concentration camps. Many emigrated. But the common denominator in all of that is that we don't know their music as well as we should. And not as an obligation, actually. We're missing something. I think Alexander Zemlinsky is one of the greatest of those composers. Others agreed with me. Now, for instance, let me quote his one-time student and one-time brother-in-law, Arnold Schoenberg, whom himself was victimized by the Nazis. He more fortunately survived longer and came to live, of course, in Southern California. Now, Arnold Schoenberg, no generous or kind man when it came to his criticism of other composers, wrote, I do not know one composer after Wagner who could satisfy the demands of the theater with better musical substance than he, meaning Alexander Zeminsky. His ideas, his forms, his sonorities, and every turn of the music sprang directly from the action, from the scenery, and from the singer's voices with a naturalness and distinction of supreme quality. Arnold Schoenberg on Alexander Zeminsky. Zeminsky was also well-known as a great conductor, perhaps one of the greatest of his time. He was, for 16 years, the music director of the so-called Deutsches Theater, that's the German theater in Prague. And Igor Stravinsky, also not a kind or generous man, wrote that the greatest performance of any conductor that he had seen was that of Alexander Simlinski's conducting the Marriage of Figaro in Prague. These are very great compliments coming from very, very, very critical minds. Another, uh, Theodore Adorno, writer, musicologist, if we dare be objective and admit that there is damn little good music today, that Zemlinsky should rivet our attention, for he was a true master. He should command our attention despite the objections that are raised even before we have listened to him attentively, and behind which lurks nothing but the will to reconfirm our historical judgment at all costs. And then Franz Werfel, the great Austrian writer and last husband of Alma Schindler Mahler. One thing is clear. The man who put these notes to paper has a soul of fire. He emanates from the innermost heart of music. So why Zemlinski? And again, why now? I am deeply convinced in the music of Zemlinski. I believe that if the public hears his music in committed performances by great artists, it will come to love it. I do not agree with the oft-repeated cliché that there are no unknown masterpieces. Though his music is very much of a time and a place in history, I believe that its intrinsic genius has much to offer us today. And as an operatic composer from his epic, he is second only to Strauss, Berg, and Puccini. 
I believe that the distance that separates our time from his can serve us to free ourselves from the polemics and prejudices of his and subsequent generations. It is, of course, ironic that Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern all expressed their admiration for Zemlinsky. Zemlinsky had been Schoenberg's only teacher, his brother-in-law, and despite a sometimes tempestuous friendship, a lifelong colleague. Berg, who knew Zemlinsky also as teacher and older colleague, admired his compositions and even quoted them in his own. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much about the story at this point, but I want to put a particular perspective now on this third part of the theoretical Alma trilogy and that of Oscar Wilde. It is based on, as I mentioned, the birthday of the Infanta. By now, there are no further disguises. The composer himself, small in stature and in Alma's words, hideous, identified with the title role. Alma is the Infanta, the daughter of the King of Spain. She receives a dwarf as a gift, has grown up in the wilderness, and has never seen a mirror. So we come back to this 20th century Rigoletto, who has grown up in the wilderness and has never seen himself. He is unconscious of his appearance and is bequeathed a pure, poetic, and enlightened soul. He falls in love with the Infanta. She is at first fascinated and later bored with her new toy, as she calls it, and abandons him after he, crushed after seeing his image for the first time in a mirror, ceases to please her. Her companion, Gita, the only sympathetic character in the court, consoles him as his life passes away. The devastating portrait of a dwarf who has never looked in a mirror, whose new self-awareness destroys first his sense of self-worth and ultimately his life, leads the listener to a disturbing metaphysical question. In contradiction to the ancient Greek maxim, know thyself, are we not better off not knowing ourselves? Do each of us need our illusions in order to survive? I make a small parenthesis here. Perhaps Oscar Wilde's most famous work is The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is based on that image, outer beauty, inner corruption, and all those same Wildian themes. And of course, has a brilliant, shocking, and surprising end at the end of that story. Here again, the appearance and the mirror, which of course is like the portrait, like the picture of Dorian Gray, is a central dramatic factor in the story. Small but endowed with superior intelligence and sensitivity, it is clear that Zemlinsky identifies deeply with the Zwerg, the dwarf, transposing the elements from Oscar Wilde necessary to express himself in the character. The dwarf and Zemlinsky are pure-hearted, generous, and loving. They are both victims of broken hearts, rejected or ignored by the oblivious narcissism of the love object. Alma in real life, the Infanta in the story. As a theater work, it is worthy of its contemporaries. Dramatically taut and balanced, perfectly proportioned, word and music are excellently wed. The lyrical, dramatic, and formal elements seamlessly fused. The vocal writing is free and mellifluous, and the orchestra as brilliant and imaginative as any work of Richard Strauss or Gustav Mahler. The dwarf, Der Zwerg, is a tale of innocence destroyed, 
of impossible longing and desire for unattainable love, replete with seductive charm, glittering sensuality, longing, hopelessness, and that fin de siècle decadence, these three dramas are animated by intricate dilemmas and morbid ironies. The dwarf, outwardly grotesque, inwardly pure, loves the infanta. Zalome, outwardly beautiful, inwardly corrupt, desires Yohanan, John the Baptist. The saintly beast loves the cold princess in one, and the cold princess desires the beastly saint in the other. Zemlinsky's long obsession with Alma provided him with a muse for several decades. Gradually, the political realities of the 1930s and ill health overshadowed it all. Of the many composers whose music was lost to us in that period, his case is one of the most dramatic and urgent. It is the mission of those of us who have already been bitten by the passionate power of his music to pass it on to others. Don't miss this rarely performed one-act opera featured in our upcoming double bill. Tickets are on sale now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. (laughs) 